Episode 24 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 5.5, Comparison of Leadership. I love the Book of Mormon. The topic of this episode is one of many that, as I wrote and thought about it, seemed very appropriate for the present world. I hope that in what I talk about, you also will see solutions to your current frustrations and problems. I begin this episode with a quote from Hans Delbruck's History of the Art of War, Volume 1, Warfare in Antiquity, page 159. Delbruck is here quoting from the ancient Greek writer and general Xenophon, who said, and I quote, The field commander must be ingenious, energetic, careful, full of stamina and presence of mind, loving and tough, straightforward and crafty alert and deceptive, ready to gamble everything and wishing to have everything, generous and greedy, trusting and suspicious. Close quote. In the two men that we discuss in this episode, Moroni and Amalekiah, we see these attributes. From the perspective of a secular reader, both men were tremendously successful leaders. They each moved nations of people to do difficult and important things. Mormon tells his readers that he provided a comparison of leadership between Moroni and Amalickiah in the verse that I quote from Alma 48, 7. Now it came to pass that while Amalickiah had thus been obtaining power by fraud and deceit, Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God, close quote. For the most part, We have detailed the life and leadership ability of Moroni in earlier podcast episodes. This episode will focus mostly on Amalickiah and bring in previously detailed examples of Moroni's character or actions in contrast. I want to emphasize here that we have more detail about the personality and actions of Amalickiah than almost any other Book of Mormon personality other than Nephi 1, Alma 2, Moroni, and Nephi 4. Think about that. Why so much detail on a bad guy? I offer my opinion, which is that Amalickiah serves as the Satan archetype in the Book of Mormon story. Mormon, as I have said many times now, is showing us rather than telling us how Satan functions, how he operates, how Satan inspires us to do evil, and how Satan corrupts twists, and betrays us in pursuit of his own desires. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Part 1 Summary We are talking about people and events from the 1st century BC in the Book of Mormon. Both Amalickiah and Moroni were Nephite by culture, language, and ethnicity, assuming that this was a distinction. We learn later in Helaman chapter 1 verse 16 that Amalickiah is a descendant of the original Zoram, who was a servant of Laban and who came with Nephi 1 and his family from Jerusalem to the promised land. In this historical sense, that then dated back more than 500 years, Amalickiah was a Zoramite. That may have made a difference. We are told by Jacob and Mormon that they lump all the ites divisions into Lamanites and Nephites, but we don't know how much this sort of division mattered. 
to the people living in this first century period. Think about 21st century America or almost any other country in our present world. We might call everyone who is a citizen of the country Americans or Germans or French, but there are still differences that matter. Those might be ethnic differences, regional differences, or ideological differences. Being descended from a servant who was somewhat abducted from Jerusalem might have had some societal stigma or societal distinction. It was enough that Amalekiah's nephew used the historical story as a point of grievance when addressing the chief judge in a letter. The bulk of the introduction to Amalekiah takes place in the 19th year of the reign of the judges, or about 73 BC. Amalekiah petitioned the Nephite, writ large, people to change the law to allow for a king. I ask that you guess who wants to be king. Of course, it was Amalekiah. The people rejected Amalekiah's petition, at least in some part as a result of Moroni raising what he called the title of liberty, which would become the singular inspirational document of Nephite political discourse for about 100 years. Amalekiah was angry. He gathered his people and they fled toward Lamanite lands. Moroni gathered an army, pursued Amalekiah, fought several battles, and brought many of the followers back to Nephite lands, where they agreed to enter a covenant to honor what was espoused in the title of liberty. By the way, I address the title of liberty in some detail in episode 22 or part 5.3 of this podcast series. Amalekiah escaped Moroni and made it to the Lamanite capital. He inspired the Lamanite king to go to war with the Nephites, but many Lamanite fighters refused the call for war. Amalekiah was sent with an army to compel the disobedient fighters to do as directed by the king. Amalekiah succeeded in uniting the army, but not as directed, as we shall see, and he returned with the combined force to the capital city. Amalekiah had the king murdered. He became the king of the Lamanites, and he inspired the people to go to war against the Nephites at the cities of Ammonihah and Noah, where the Lamanite armies were defeated. All of this took place in a single year. Amalekiah then trained the Lamanite army to take cities for about four to five years before leading a massive army that conquered six Nephite cities in a single campaigning season in about 67 B.C., or the 25th year of the reign of the judges. Amalekiah was a powerful man, a great orator, and a person with the ability to inspire others. The Lamanites in 72 BC were used to welcoming and absorbing Nephite dissenters. It was also common for those dissenters to receive places of leadership within the Lamanite military structure. So far as we know from the Book of Mormon record, Amalekiah was the first dissenter to gain the position of king of the Lamanites. He was clearly a man of supreme ambition. Like many conquerors and dictators before him, victory was not enough. He seemed to want total domination. It is not clear what his intent was at the beginning of his flight to the land of Nephi. It is possible that he was simply interested in revenge against Moroni and those who caused his flight from Zarahemla and his loss of the possible kingship of the Nephites. This provides an interesting commentary on the two peoples. Other than revenge, why would Amalekiah not have simply been content with ruling the Lamanites? Mormon tells us that the Lamanites were more numerous than the Nephites, and therefore the kingdom of the Lamanites had to have been bigger 
and more populous than that of the Nephites when Amalickiah became king. Why not remain king of the larger and presumably better kingdom unless there were some resources or other compelling reasons to consider the land of Zarahemla better than the land of Nephi? If the story of dissenters not being content with the leading position in the land of Nephi were limited to one or two people, then the issue of simple greed and ambition would be extremely plausible. But it seems like all of the dissenters wanted to control the land of Zarahemla, or at least inspired the Lamanites to do so. The bulk of what I will relate is told in Alma chapters 46 through 48. Part 2. Amalickiah Inspires War According to Mormon, Amalickiah's first act once he arrived and was welcomed among the Lamanites in the land of Nephi was to inspire the Lamanites to go to war with the Nephites. At least he tried to, and succeeded with the king and others around him, as we are told in Alma 47.1. It is easy to imagine the half-truths and outright lies used to inspire the call to arms and inflame the old hatreds between the peoples. The story of Ammon and his brethren, and the challenges they faced in teaching the Lamanites, which we discussed in episode 17, or part 4.2, communicates clearly the misperceptions common among the Lamanites about the relationships with their brethren, the Nephites. Despite the hatreds and the effectiveness of Amalickiah's words with the king of the Lamanites, he was not universally successful in inspiring the hearts of the Lamanites to war. Many did not want to go. It is important to reflect on the enormous casualties suffered by the Lamanites over the previous 15 years. They had lost tens of thousands of warriors in several failed attacks against the Nephite lands. The only successful attack had been the destruction of the city of Ammonihah in 81 BC, or the 11th year of the reign of the judges, and even that battle ended with the loss of all the prisoners taken from the city of Noah. There had been failures in the tremendous battle of the wilderness that had taken an enormous toll, and this was followed with a dissenter-inspired attack defeated by Moroni and his armored warriors south of Manti. Most of those opposed to going back to war with the Nephites had to have either fought in one or more of these failures or had lost relatives in these ventures. Is there any question why they would be less inclined to go to battle in following yet another Nephite dissenter with promises of victory? Part 3. The Place of Arms These events are described in Alma chapter 47, verses 1 through 6. Amalickiah was given command of the loyalist forces and ordered by the king to force those who refused to fight to join the king and his army. The opposition army had fled to a place called Onidah and near a hill called Antipas. In Alma 47, verse 5, we are told, and I quote, Therefore they fled to Onidah, to the place of arms. Close quote. What does the term a place of arms mean? There are a variety of possibilities. First is that this was a place designated for the mustering for Lamanite armies. When the Lamanites were called to arms, this could have been one of those places where they gathered. Second, this could have been an ancient armory. This might have literally been where the Lamanite government stored their armaments. This is probably the least likely as the weapons used for battle were generally also the same weapons used for hunting, 
and they probably were not stored in a distant location that would require some significant maintenance and bureaucratic oversight of the equipment. This is difficult in modern warrior societies and therefore problematic in ancient times. Third, this might have been a place of weapons materials. For example, an obsidian cliff or flint bed. This could have been a place where the natural resource for weapons existed and therefore a common place for warriors to go as they prepared for battle or for the hunt to refresh their obsidian bits for their swords or to fashion new arrow or spearheads. Regardless of the specific reason, the fact that the opposing warriors were drawn to this location without prior coordination probably gives the first reason significant credence, with the second and third as supporting possibilities. It was to this location that Amalekiah led his army. It is clear from the story that Amalekiah either knew about Lamanite military hierarchy prior to arriving in the land of Nephi, or he learned it early in his command as he clearly and quickly formed a plan for gaining his ambition. It seems that he already intended to assassinate the king and that he wanted to cement his leadership of the army through getting their loyalty. Part 4. Conspiracy to Command All the Army these events are described in Alma chapter 47, verses 6 through 20. Amalekiah camped his army at Onadah, and he invited the opposing commander Lahontai to come and meet with him. Lahontai had encamped his army at the top of the hill Antipas, or at least up the slope on that hill. Lahontai refused Amalekiah's request to meet with him multiple times. Amalekiah went up without a guard met with Lahontai and conspired with Lahontai to capture the army Amalekiah was leading by encircling them at night. With Amalekiah's army captured, and as agreed, Amalekiah became second in command of the combined army with Lahontai in command. Throughout this process, Amalekiah created an environment where both armies would be beholden to him personally and not to the king or Lahontai. First, he demonstrated his willingness to risk himself by traveling with no guards up to meet Lahontai, the newly appointed king of the opposition, after numerous epistles failed to bring Lahontai down to him. This act had to impress Lahontai and those around him, and maybe shamed them as well. Then, Amalekiah delivered the loyalist army by providing the means for their capture without the loss of life to any of Lahontai's army. The warriors in Lahontai's army must have realized the danger and the fact that many would die in killing their brothers over not fighting Nephites. It had to seem a cowardly form of bravery and somewhat unattractive to them. The gift of winning the battle without loss had to be a relief to all involved. Amalekiah ensured his potential for future command by gaining the position of second in command. Amalekiah also secured the loyalty of the loyalist forces by how he staged their surrender. He did not surrender the army, but instead he waited until the army saw the hopelessness of their own situation as they were surrounded by Lahontai and his forces who were ready for battle. The loyalist fighters begged Amalekiah to not order them to fight. It is almost certain that Amalekiah acted his part well and let them know that he would surrender to save them and make sure they would live to see their families again. 
The loyalist fighters certainly appreciated the graciousness of their commander as he did not have to surrender. Both armies then owed their personal existence to Amalekiah, and he had gained the loyalty of each fighter as he was the one responsible for preventing a bloody and brutal encounter. Once in place as second-in-command, Amalekiah had Lahontai poisoned to death so that Amalekiah could assume command of the entire army. The poisoning of Lahontai was something that was done with subtlety. Mormon described it in Alma 47.18 as being administered by degrees, which leads one to think that Lahontai became ill and slowly got worse until his death was welcomed by his followers as a merciful blessing to their leader. Again, it is not difficult to imagine the acting job done by Amalekiah to convince everyone of his sorrow and his efforts to save the opposition king. One can imagine that the warriors were happy to convert the leadership of the army on their caring and compassionate leader, Amalekiah. Everything Amalekiah did was sly and beneath observation. He kept his counsel secret and led people toward a course he wanted while keeping them blind to the destination and the reasons behind the efforts. Not one of the people he dealt with in this gaining of power knew his mind or where he was trying to take them. Interestingly, Mormon did. Mormon tells the reader many times in this sequence that things were in accordance with the desires of Amalekiah or that these things were the desires of Amalekiah. We are told so in Alma chapter 47, verses 4, 13, 15, 16, and 20. Part 5. Regicide. These events are described in Alma chapter 47, verses 21 through 35. Much of the success enjoyed by Amalekiah in his conspiracy efforts was owed to the ancient and ineffective nature of communications and information transfer. When the army showed back up at the capital, the king clearly thought his servant had done what he wanted. The king came forward to welcome his servant, this is Amalekiah, and was killed by those Amalekiah sent forward to welcome the king. Amalekiah, not being present, gave him the plausible deniability of the action and allowed him, as he moved forward, to make the loudest cry against the servants of the king as the murderers of the king and allowed Amalekiah to act in another role as the protector of the crown. The absurdity of this was that the king's guards were probably from his immediate or at least close extended family, as was common in warrior tribal cultures anciently and still tends to be true today. What would be their motivation for killing a family member? Amalekiah used the ancient and contemporary tactic of volume rather than reason. The queen's reaction is interesting in that she immediately begged for the safety of the city, fearing the possibility of a sack by the army now encamped outside the city itself, especially since the person of the king was no more. In reading about the queen, it is important to keep in mind that in most cultures throughout history, and certainly in the ancient world, a queen only had power as it came to her from her position, and not inherent in her person. Once the king was dead, the queen might have simply reverted back to being another widow in the city and little more. 
This makes the queen's act of marrying Amalekiah more understandable, as she was probably seeking to maintain her position and probably that of her family and children. The marriage of Amalekiah to the queen was probably not what allowed him to become king, but he was probably chosen by the tribal or clan leaders and not by right of succession as the husband of the queen. Part 6. Preaching Propaganda These events are described in Alma chapter 48 verses 1 through 6. Just as it was Amalekiah's first act to incite the Lamanite king to go to war with the Nephites, once he became king, it was his first act to inspire the Lamanites to go to war. He was more subtle than the previous king. It might have been out of concern for his position as a usurper that he did not simply order the Lamanites to go to war, but rather he sought to get them to desire war, much as he twisted his army to seek him to surrender the army rather than doing so himself. Once again, he could play the role as an obedient responder to the will of the people rather than that of a dictator. This points out an important aspect of tribal cultures and tribal societies, whether they be ancient or modern. Tribal societies rarely have rulers that can simply dictate actions. Usually, the rulers must get some form of consensus before action can be taken. Usually, tribal group, clan, sometimes family leaders are the ones who counsel with the king, in this case, to come to this decision. We might see that as the reason why Amalekiah doesn't simply dictate that the Lamanites will now go to war with the Nephites. Instead, Amalekiah appointed people to stand on towers and recite the list of Nephite crimes and wrongs. It seems probable that enough people listening had lost family members to Nephite fighters in the past, and they had reason to hate Nephites, and this added to the fictitious wrongs of Nephi's usurping the position of his elder brother and the dispossession of the Lamanites from all that was good. This would have provided additional anecdotal evidence for the thought that there were better resources or living conditions in Zarahemla and the only reasons the Lamanites did not have them was because of the perfidy of the Nephites and their evil and twisted ways. Mormon uses some interesting language as he expresses the objective of those who preached, inspired the hearts of the Lamanites against the Nephites. Typically, we don't use the word inspire when discussing grievances. Mormon is teaching us something profound, one can be inspired to feel grievance against another. One is uplifted and inspired toward negative emotions. Amalekiah subtly twisted his new people to hate his native people enough to risk another possible defeat. Little did they know the victories and defeats he was leading them towards. Part 7. Failure and Retraining I will not discuss this part in detail, as a future episode will be a battle analysis of the fighting around the cities of Ammonihah and Noah. The Lamanite army failed in its attacks and returned defeated and probably demoralized with all of the captains dead. This was abject failure in capturing cities. We are not given any detail about what Amalekiah did next as we are instead taken back to the comparison with Moroni and taught about how Moroni was preparing his people. The gist from Mormon is that good leaders prepare and bad leaders inspire toward grievance and violence. 
I agree with this poetic and metaphorical assessment. However, Amalekiah was also preparing his army. We aren't told how, and I wish that we were, for historical reasons, as what we see in the record is a pretty amazing turnaround. Both Nephite and Lamanite armies seem pretty inept at taking cities. We will see as we discuss battles in detail that years into the fighting, Moroni still seemed to lack a dedicated engineer force that specialized in going over, under, or through walls. Amalekiah, on the other hand, trained an army such that it took six cities in a single campaigning season. I want to offer two possible ways that he accomplished this preparation. I think that both of these ways fit within the metaphor of Amalekiah as the Satan archetype. First is the traditional way of modern armies, through training. I imagine that Amalekiah taught and then drilled his fighters about the weak spots in Nephite fortifications and how to exploit those weak spots such that the fighters could overcome them. It is important to note that the majority of the fortification construction that we discussed in episode 21, or part 5.2, occurred after the dissension of Amalekiah. That said, it is possible that the pattern used by Moroni for the city fortifications was an existing one, and since Amalekiah had been a person of some influence in Nephite society, probably a pattern with which he was familiar. Second was subterfuge. Most ancient and medieval cities were captured through intrigue and some insider turning the keys of the city, so to speak, over to the attacking army. It is possible that Amalekiah used the four to five years of preparation to send out a network of spies and agents who corrupted key individuals who might then have surrendered the city or surrendered key fortifications within the city at critical moments so that the city fell relatively quickly into Lamanite hands. This way is supportive of the later secret combinations and their efforts to undermine society and then turn those societies into something more amenable to the will of those within the secret combination. Maybe Amalekiah was the inspiration for such behavior. For the reasons I just stated, I like the second way more. It is more poetic and seems to fit cleanly within the Satan archetype of tearing down rather than building up, even if that building up is the development of skills for destruction of fortifications. In reality, it was probably some combination of the two to develop the capabilities used to capture the cities. My main point here is to note that Amalekiah didn't give up because he failed. He figured out a way to be successful and then he attacked again. Part 8. Conclusion As I have already read, Mormon provided the comparison of these two leaders in Alma chapter 48 verse 7. Mormon saw the two men as the archetypes of the soldier of Christ and Satan. We are shown how both operate so that we may know what we need to do and what we need to prepare ourselves against respectively. A soldier of Christ inspires others with a common vision of the title of liberty reminded everyone of what they stood for and were willing to sacrifice for. Moroni did a similar thing at Manti, as he reminded his new recruits from Manti about the purpose of the struggle. He continued to remind soldiers during the fighting as things looked their worst. 
When the night is darkest, it is good and necessary to be reminded of the sun. Moroni did just that. Moroni was clear in his purpose to the point of extreme effort and harshness. Moroni prepared people mentally, physically, and spiritually. He had people enter covenants with each other in terms of commitments and with God. These covenants and the constant reminders of them helped to unite the soldiers in a common effort that, when united, resulted in victory. I remind you of the number of times surrounding the enemy is how the Nephites defeated their opponents. Spiritual and physical unity resulted in battlefield success. We will see this over and over and over again. Mormon shows us physical unity on the battlefield almost constantly. He shows us the antithesis as well. Amalickiah did the same things as did Moroni. He had people preach to remind the Lamanites of their grievances and hatred against the Nephites. He prepared his fighters to attack and take Nephite cities. Amalickiah's subordinate commanders regularly took oaths, as he did, to attack and take certain places or kill certain opponents. Amalickiah sought to unify his people in hatred of the Nephites and to disunite the Nephites through subterfuge so that the Nephites would weaken their own defenses. Amalickiah lied, deceived, poisoned, murdered, assassinated, seduced, and inspired hatred so that he could rule and lead thousands to death and destruction. Amalickiah built nothing. He took what others built, and he sought to take more. From a secular perspective, Amalickiah was an active and accomplished man. He did much. He had one of the busiest years in Nephite history. He was amazing, but he did it all for personal glory and benefit. He did not do it for the benefit of anyone else. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, verses 34 and 35, we are told something profound about Amalickiah. Quote, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. Close quote. Amalickiah was such a person. If you want to know about how Satan does or will seek to operate in your life, read about Amalickiah and see how he gains the things of the world and the honors of men. In our next episode, we will meet another such person named Morianton. This will be a battle analysis of sorts on the events and fighting around this man and his people. We will also be introduced to one of my favorite people in the Book of Mormon, Tiancum. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.